0: Hello, sir. Hello, Ben. How are you? I'm good. How you doing? Doing well. This is my second time this week talking to you. I know. We're going to have a queue, which is kind of nice because yeah. we're very flaky, so we'll probably need to spend down this queue yep. pretty fast. Totally. Um, I'm pretty pumped for this episode, going to be honest.
1: I am as well. I'm feeling I'm feeling superhuman today. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: So, hey, hey, Derek, you remember that time we talked about superhuman for like 30 minutes one time? Yeah, like those last 10 times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's, yeah, it seemed to come up a lot. And uh, after one episode, I was like, we really should just like reach out to one of the co-founders and have them on. And so I did. And so we do. And so uh, on the line with us today is Rahul Vora. Hey, Rahul. Hello. How's it going?
2: I am doing great. Thank you for asking.
0: Yeah. So you're the co-founder and CEO of Superhuman right now. Previously, you co-founded Reportive, which was acquired by LinkedIn. Uh, your background is that you are a computer scientist and gamer, something I want to dive into a little bit later. Uh, but I'm I'm very excited to have you on the podcast. I, I think we're going to spend most of the time talking about Superhuman because there's some very interesting things about the company. So I'm, uh, I'm very glad to have you here.
2: Great. Looking forward to it.
1: Yeah. Derek, do you want to start us off? Sure. Yeah. So I just want to say actually real quick before I dive into a question, I am a superhuman user and lover of the product. So congrats on the product you built. It's a beautiful experience. Thank you very much. It literally makes our days to hear folks say that. So thank you. Good. Awesome. There's one thing that's pretty unique that stands out about superhuman today. And it's the fact that It's still invite only after a number of years that you guys have been live. So I'm just kind of curious to hear, like, what's the rationale behind that choice and how's
2: that working out? This is a pretty interesting question because most people fairly incorrectly assume the reason we are invite only is, for example, to increase demand. But that was actually not at all part of the motivation and it doesn't factor into why we do it today. And I would come at it the other way. So most companies, especially productivity companies, make the cardinal sin of making a thing and then just throwing it over the wall and seeing what happens. And the thing is, if you do that, you get two very fundamental problems. Number one, you don't get to pick your users and that has its own consequences. And number two, you can't responsibly work on their feedback. So if you don't get to pick your users, this greatly dilutes what you can learn. If you're starting a tool or building an app, you probably have some thesis around who the best users would be. But if you just get the usual tens of thousands of people that might join from a generic launch, you've probably got a whole bunch of everybody. And that is slowing down your learning. Uh, the other consequence of not picking your users is that it dampens your virality and your MPS. Let's say that of 10,000 people that join in a traditional launch, only 500 of them are actually the type of person you really wanted. Your upper bound for your net promoters is 500 out of 10,000, which is really, really tiny. So that's what happens when you don't pick your users. Now, the other side of this equation, in, in a sense, this is actually almost even worse, is you cannot responsibly work on their feedback. And this is a thing that hits productivity companies particularly hard because the surface area of what we have to build is just so huge. I mean, if if you guys could imagine what we've gone through in building uh, an email experience that's not only as good as Gmail, but in fact better such that people not only use it, but they love it. It's many, many, many years of effort. Now imagine that for tasks or for calendaring or for anything else. If you just launched a thing, threw it over the wall, then people would try it, but you don't get to fix their bugs in time. In the end, you get a reputation for being slow and for not listening to users, and ultimately they end up churning out. Uh, So by doing it the way that we've done it, you both get to pick your users and you get time to work on their feedback. And by picking the users, you get more relevant feedback, you learn faster, you increase MPS, you get more authentic, genuine virality with the community that matters most to you. And by working on the feedback really fast, you get a reputation for listening really closely and also maximizing retention. And most importantly, that creates a sustainable word of mouth growth engine. And if you look at the heart of any successful growth story, the core driver is always word of mouth.
0: Is it fair to say that it's sort of one of your concerns that if you let anyone use the product, they would just not love it enough to go rave
2: about it? Absolutely. And the main reason for that is they were probably not in the target market of what the product is for. You know, they might not be a high-volume email sender. We've really designed the product. For people for whom email is work and work is email, and that value proposition of getting through your inbox twice as fast and seeing inbox zero sustainably uh, is is meaningful, if not even life changing.
0: It's an interesting contrarian position, where this sounds very logical. Why is why aren't more people not doing this?
2: Uh, well, my cynical answer is that most people don't think through deliberately all of the things that a startup must do. The more compassionate answer to that, or the sort of the compassionate view of that is when you're building a startup, there are so many things to consider and to get right. The idea of how you go to market or how you launch is very often left to an afterthought. And so it becomes the the default, hey, let's do the TechCrunch thing, let's do the hack and news thing, let's do the product hunt thing, whatever the the site du jour is. But I would challenge, our, you know, us as entrepreneurs to think about what would it be if we considered everything deeply from scratch. That's certainly how we approach problems at Superhuman. We we try and build absolutely everything that we do we do up uh, from first principles. Hmm.
0: So I have some sort of personal experience that bumps into this a little bit, which is so I I make an app that is very performance sensitive. Like, it's, it, de- it depends on how powerful your machine is, like, as a CPU, but also, like, how good your network connection is. In the beginning, we were pretty picky about who we would let in because we were afraid that people with, like, not such a good CPU or not such a good network would have bad experiences. And over time, I found myself, like, kind of loosening my grip on that because I guess it's like, well, we're bootstrapped. And so we're burning savings and we're trying to get to, like, ramen profitable. And people would sometimes show up and be like... I think we're like a, and who I would say like are a pretty good fit. Like, I don't know, like this, this might work out even though they're using like a VPN all the time. And like, let's, let's actually just like let them use it and see what happens. And so it's, it's weird because like, it feels like almost like turning down customers is kind of a luxury of the having like venture capital money to burn through. Would you agree with that?
2: I would say that there are probably two reasons why you wouldn't turn down money. One is that you're bootstrapping and it's literally existential. That isn't the case for us. We uh, have, of course, raised money. However, there are cases also where you may have raised money, but still turning down people may be irrational. And that really depends on the size of the market and the pace of your learning. Now we happen for the business that we have chosen to be working in an incredibly huge market. The the TAM, the revenue potential for superhuman, even just our email products, let alone the products that are yet to come, is absolutely ginormous. That in combination with the fact that we have raised a healthy amount of venture capital allows us to really focus on the users who matter the most. Early on when
1: when you guys started out and when you were kind of discovering your product market fit formula, you mentioned I think that you had about 100 customers using the product and then you kind of started to run the survey asking if they would be very disappointed if they could no longer use the product. How did you approach like recruiting your earliest customers and making sure that they were in alignment with the kind of product you were looking to build so that you could kind of over time fit your solution to that type of customer?
2: I am casting my mind back to that time. It was 2016 for the most part and early 2017. And much of the work behind the the product market fit engine that, that you're talking about was done during that time period. I think, like many companies, the early users were were definitely friends and family. We happen to be the kind of company where our investor base also turned out to be a perfect example of our target market. And we have a very contrarian way of raising money as well uh, that I haven't spoken much about, but we have many probably north of a 100 or 150 investors. In the company at this point, many of those early customers were actually angel investors in the company. But I made it as real as possible. No one got the product for free. Even investors had to pay. Even our biggest investors had to pay it. I wanted it to be a, a real, meaningful simulation of what it would mean to buy our products. So that's how we recruited those first 100 users. But of course, what happened is, and this This happens if you have a thing that's worth sharing, is that those people quickly told their friends. And by the time we were 100 customers in, I would guess, if I were to to recall, about half of those were unaffiliated customers. I was doing some research for this interview. I went back and I watched your
0: uh, interview with Jason Calacanis. This was back in October of 2018, so like six months ago or so. You were showing off Superhuman. Was that your actual inbox that you were showing there? Correct. Okay, great. So in it, I saw that you had superhuman feedback emails going in there. So like there's a button I can click that sends feedback about superhuman. And I saw like live ones in your inbox.
2: And so I was curious, like, are, are you still like four-ish years into this, like reading all of those? Unfortunately not. The, the volume of feedback emails we get is really, really high. I think it's about at peak six or seven in any given minute of the day and that goes on for every minute of the day Uh, so that is clearly more than one person can can read and stay on top of let alone reply to Uh, so we have a, a wonderful team of delight specialists whose main responsibility is to delight you and the folks like you that are wonderful customers having said that i do insist on all of the emails coming into my inbox Uh, You know, one of the cool things about having built the fastest email experience in the world is being able to leverage its search for basically whatever I need to do. Uh, So I pipe basically everything that's happening inside of Superhuman, whether it's Google Docs or GitHub or satisfaction surveys or customer support into my inbox. So I'm always just an instant search and a few characters away from learning whatever I need to learn. I think it genuinely makes me a better CEO and leader.
0: Mm Mm-hmm yeah'm I'm, I'm still in the very early days, but'm I'm, I'm sort of always loath to stop that feedback torrent from coming in even when it feels like a little bit
2: overwhelming. I completely agree, and I held on to doing it probably way past the point that was rational. But I think that's I think that's the right choice for a product oriented founder. You sh- we should be doing it way past the point at which it's rational. Uh, if we were rational, we wouldn't be starting companies. I'm curious. You have, from what the outside appears to be, kind of ridiculous
0: word of mouth happening and a giant waiting list and, and all that. So are you still
2: doing like active marketing efforts to try to like grow that list even more? Uh, we have never done any active marketing efforts. We've never spent a dollar on marketing. And yes, despite that, the wait list continues to grow. So we are, I think, 180,000 people strong on that. And every week, it's, it's quite remarkable. Every week, 70% or more of the new customers that we add to the product has come from a word-of-mouth referral from the previous week. And hmm. from the previous so week. It, that's interesting. Yeah. Which if you tie it all the way back to where we began, the number one thing that I look for as a founder, as an entrepreneur, also as an angel investor, is can I see a path to sustainable hmm. word-of-mouth growth? If I can, then I know that there's something there, uh, and that's definitely the the point to which we've arrived at superhuman, despite not having anyone working on marketing and not spending any money on it. Hmm.
0: I have to say, one one of these touches that I saw is so you have this sort of info sidebar, sort of an homage to Reportive back in the day. When someone emails you, it's like here's their picture, here's their job title, and some tweets and things like that, and. I guess maybe a couple months ago, I think you added a button on there, which basically showed me, oh, this person is on the superhuman waiting list. Click here to refer them. That is just such a smart idea. I, I like. I was blown away at just the presence of that button.
2: Great. Well, I'm glad it worked. It sounded like you clicked it.
0: I did. Yeah. And it works. And the thing that I think is so great about it is that it basically turns me into kind of a hero for somebody, which is like such a gift. Basically, like I, I got value from that. We're like, I'll be emailing my customers sometimes and i'll see oh this person's on the waiting list and i'll just start a new thread and be like hey i know you're on the waiting list are you interested in this and like oh cool yeah thanks And like i get to do them a favor that costs me nothing and it was just oh, it's just man it's it's good
2: i love it i i think that that as a general principle is is something that we can all learn from how do we help the customers of our products be a hero for their customers right isn't that why all products exist isn't that worth paying for I would suspect, yes. I was looking at your hiring, like the jobs you
0: have open, and you talk about your values, which I think is good for hiring in particular. But you say one of the values is deliver surprising joy. What we make people feel is just as important as what we make. And I'm curious to where that came from. Have you had that value for a long time? Were there Was there some sort of specific event or experience
2: that, that kind of caused that to come into being? Yes, we've had that for a very long time. It very much predates the company, and I can track it back to, two different things. So if you wind the clock way back early in my career, I used to be a game designer. And game design is utterly fascinating to me. Uh, It's built into everything that we do. I'm still a, a hardcore video gamer and I find it fascinating. And the cool thing about game design is you don't really orient around what users want or what users need but you orient around how they feel. How can you design for a certain emotional state? And that's not something that most product managers really have much experience with. Uh, It's much more in the traditional design wheelhouse. But if you go into the game design industry, that's literally all that we did there. And I think that that is a very different way to building software products. And it's how we do it here. We don't, if you were to read one of our product specs, worry too much about what you want or what you need, but we are designing for how you feel. Now in the literature of game design, especially if you get fairly academic, they have various definitions. Like what is delight? What is disgust? Can we actually break these down atomically? Uh, And delight by most people's definition turns out to be pleasant surprise. And disgust is interesting, it's the antonym, it's unpleasant surprise. And I think it's really interesting how you can take this singular concept of surprise, put it on a spectrum and on the one end you have delight, which is the thing that we try to engineer for all the time, create delight, and on the other hand, you have disgust. And by breaking it down as pleasant surprise, you can actually start to use that as a north star. So when you're reading a product spec, you can literally be asking yourself, where are the moments of present surprise? Can we identify them? Can we engineer more of them in? Can we build an entire company culture around this notion of pleasant surprise? And I think you can. Uh, So when I was out fundraising for the company recently, about 10 slides into my deck, I would actually stop. And I would say to the VCs, uh, I would show them a slide. And the, uh, the title of the slide was, We Are the Joy Company. We have figured out a sustainable and scalable way to deliver joy. That is what we do. And I'd say at this point, you're either on the bus or you're off the bus. You either think this is fantastic and you want to lean in, or you think this is absurd and you have no idea what I'm talking about. And about 50% of the folks that I pitched had no idea what it meant to be the joy company. So I also found it was an incredible filter for investors as well. Makes sense. You're, you're filtering
0: your users. You're filtering your uh, your investors as well. Yes. I'm imagining applying this to the work I'm doing right now building a product and one thing I I think is tricky to balance is I often want to ship things very quickly because I want to learn from the response from people like I have an idea for a new thing that I think people will like I want to get it out the door fast and so it's like okay the easy version of this is a week and it will look like this and people will like it somewhat, but I suspect they're going to want these three other things related to it or they're going to be not happy about this particular aspect of it uh, that might take several other weeks to to implement. Do you still feel like you're shipping things and hoping to learn and iterate on those things? Because it feels a little bit like the features that you're putting out feel fairly fully baked now. Like I don't get a sense that I'm on like a beta channel and like you're just kind of testing things. How do you balance the like learning from shipping versus the clearly like high quality bar that you have? And
2: you are right. For the vast majority of what we ship, it's gone through many rounds of internal iteration, multiple product reviews, a bake, period, in-house, and more. Well, it sounds like you already know the three pieces of feedback you're going to get. You already know the most likely missing thing. How often are you wrong?
0: Not not often. (laughs) Often enough that it feels like it's probably worth the shipping the fast version. Because often I'll just predict like, oh, people are going to really dislike this part of it. And then
2: crickets. People don't. They're they're happy with what we have. Oh, that's fascinating. So we found at Superhuman that we are more often than not right. We're about 90% right on being able to predict how people will feel about something. In the cases where we are building something that has never been tried before, you know, something like split in boxes is uh, a feature that no other email client has and it's much more early in its life cycle, that's a bit different. In that scenario, we will ship a very early thing because we also don't have the answers. But for the most part, because email is such a well trodden area, we think we do know how people will feel about most things. I imagine you experience
0: surprises earlier in the process then, like when if you roll it out internally and say, Oh, like now that I actually use this, I wish
2: XYZ. Yes. we And again, I, I have an advantage here of being a perfect example of our target market. We can key off our own intuitions with fairly high accuracy for the most part.
0: Are there questions that you uh, wish people asked you in an interview that people tend to not?
2: No, not really. I, I think I get asked a very wide set of questions. Everyone has managed to ask me a question that I have not previously answered. So that is the, that's the litmus test for an interview.
0: All right. So I want to ask you about a, a quote from, I think this was a post on LinkedIn that you did or maybe Medium. But anyway, the, the quote is, the best founders I know are unstoppable forces of nature. They leave debris and destruction in their wake. Does that describe
2: you? And if so, what is in your wake currently? <laughs> uh, I think those who know me would say it's a reasonably apt description. What is in my wake currently? Uh, I'd rather not say. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Uh, but yes, uh, I, I often move that way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you miss writing code? I assume you're not writing code these days. I'm not writing code these days. Uh, I do miss writing code. I very occasionally write CSS because I'm so, so particular with how things should look and feel. And oftentimes the easiest way to get it absolutely precisely correct is just to jump in, write it, and then and then show the team what you meant. But even that is becoming less and less frequent over time. Are you like opening pull requests on the superhuman repo, or are you just like sh-
0: showing like a kind of mock up, like I, I want it to look like this?
2: Oh yeah, no, I'm definitely opening pull requests, creating branches, submitting them. Uh, occasionally, I'll be called in to approve other people's PRs, especially if it relates to layout or color or copy. So would you
0: say your schedule is fairly uh, manager-y as opposed to maker-y these days?
2: It is. It's about 40% manager-y. Mm-hmm. I actually have a pretty accurate idea of this because I track my time fairly diligently. Uh, I'm also blessed to work with an incredible EA. So she produces a chart every week of where my time is going. Hmm. Interesting. What have you learned from that? Uh, well, I'm actually looking at last week's chart right now. And it looks like that 40% of my time went into management. That's one-on-ones, staff meetings, product review, design review, reviews of various different kinds. 21% went into recruiting, which you would probably also lump into managery type work to. 14% went into fundraising. And the rest was spread across product, community engagement, and deep thought, which truly are my favorite moments of the week. Unfortunately, not enough time. Last week, it was only 11% of deep thought time. Gotcha.
0: Do you explicitly schedule that time?
2: Yes. Yes, I do. Okay.
0: Interesting. So the percentage of manager time that you're spending now, is that up a lot from the early days?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yes. I think if you were to even wind the clock back 15 months ago, my manager time would probably have been 15%. Hmm. Is that
0: a somewhat unwelcome change? Is it just a necessary evil of growing the company you want to grow? I think you
2: could choose to look at it that way. But I choose to look at this with a growth mindset. You know, I think that we enjoy the things that we become good at. That uh, at least is my philosophy. And I've been able to become good at most things that I've applied myself to. And clearly, superhuman needs a really great CEO and leader in order to succeed. So I am applying myself to the challenge of becoming a great CEO and leader at this time. Uh, And so whilst I may not enjoy some of the day-to-day aspects of it, I think the right philosophy is to ask myself why. You know, what is it about this that I don't enjoy? Can I game it by making it a challenge to excel in this area? Because then I'm just sort of turning it into... Video games, which I am very good at and I I do enjoy incredibly. And that's how I approach products. It's how I approach design. Why can't I approach running a company in the same way?
0: Hmm.
2: Are you playing any games you love right now? I'm actually somewhat in between games. Uh, I'm tempted to go back and replay an older game. Uh, So I really love narrative driven role playing games. Uh, And I'm a huge fan of the Final Fantasy series. Again, because more than any other genre of game, they design for a very specific emotional state. Unlike a first-person shooter or an RTS, both of which might be incredibly challenging, but they're less about the emotional outcome. Uh, So Final Fantasy XV was a game I played, I think, a year and a half ago. I really, really enjoyed it, Uh, but I played it before all of the DLC came out. And now there's been a a good year and a half's worth of extra content that's come out since then. So I'm quite keen to go back and do it again, relive those uh, heart-wrenching moments, but with the extra content that I didn't see before. I I feel like RPGs, at least for me, I have like a hole in my
0: brain that RPGs plug into very effectively where it's like, oh, it's, there's this thing and you're steadily getting better and this character that you have is consistently improving just from regular effort. And it's like, oh, yes,
2: this just feels so good to me. Yes, they've definitely hooked into our most basic uh, instincts for growth there. It's uh, quite remarkable how precise RPG makers can, can get around that motivation. Uh, which game were you referring to?
0: Uh, so the, the last one that really hooked me was World of Warcraft uh uh-huh. and but yes. that that genre in general i i remember very clearly being in college and watching someone play dark age of camelot which is like a predecessor and just being like i can't believe how terrible this gameplay looks like you walk up to the rat you click the button you hit the rat six times the rat dies you loot the rat it was just like it just looks so boring and terrible and on a whim i installed it and tried it it was like oh but if you hit 10 rats you level to level two And then you get slightly more powerful and you get these new things. And I was like, oh, no, I'm hooked on the treadmill. And I became terribly addicted.
2: Right. And that's before you even add in the social component, which becomes the later stage addiction for most people. Um, And I definitely went through much of the same. I I think I spent over a thousand hours in World of Warcraft back in the day. Um, No regrets at all. I I learned a tremendous amount about how to build uh, wonderful experiences.
0: Hmm. It's interesting. I hadn't thought about applying any of that into like that game stuff and the, and the emotional side into my current work, but I, I could see how there would be good opportunities for that. So, question for you about a mechanical thing. Have you done much experimenting on pricing?
2: We have done some, yes. When
0: I talk about superhuman, actually, uh, people will say like $30 a month for an email client, and I'm like, I would pay a lot more than that, actually, now that I actually am a, like a professional emailer. It feels too low. Not too low, but it it feels low. It feels like I'm getting a lot of value. Great.
2: I'm glad. Yeah. Uh, So I can share how we came up with the price if it's of interest. Yeah, that'd be great. We did early in the history of the company uh, do a price sensitivity analysis. And we did one of the easiest ones that you can do. This is the Van Westendorp pricing sensitivity. And in this process, you ask your potential customers four questions. You say... At what price point would Superhuman be so expensive that you would not buy it at all? At what price point would Superhuman be so cheap that you'd be worried about its quality such that you would also not buy it? At what price would Superhuman feel like a bargain super value for the money? And at what price would Superhuman be beginning to feel expensive so that you would have to think about it, but you would eventually actually buy it. Now for most startups, uh, the rational thing to do is to orient around the third question, the bargain for the money question. Most startups are trying to get as many users as fast as possible. Many startups are going after a new market, sort of a greenfield opportunity. But not us uh, and not for email. We're very deliberately coming in at the premium end of our market. And if you're building a premium, almost a luxury experience, an experience for people for whom email is work and work is email, then you actually want to orient around the fourth question. At what price would you have to think really hard about it, but you would still actually buy it? And so for the first 100, 150 people I onboarded, I also asked this question. And guess what? The median response to the question was $29 per month. We then did uh, a very little bit of work with some pricing experts who said, you guys should just round that up because ending a price with nine does not give the connotation of a high-end experience. That's what you do for a value pricing. Whereas for an extra dollar and no one's really going to care one way or the other, you give it the appearance or you give it pricing rather that actually matches the premium experience that you're delivering. Mm. Yeah, makes sense. We recently did the same. We just decide,
0: we're, we decided round numbers. We're, we're into it. feels good. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of round numbers.
1: <laughs> Derek, are there things that you were hoping we would cover that we haven't touched on yet? Yeah, I was curious. Are there any metrics besides the product market fit score that you guys track regularly?
2: Oh, yes, absolutely. Very many metrics. Uh, we, for example, do track MPS. I think it's an incredibly valuable metric. It measures a different thing and has different levers that, that move it. Uh, we track activation rates. We track seat churn rates of activated users. We track uh, net dollar churn rates. And I'm very happy to say that those are very negative right now. So our cohorts are growing. Uh, so, yeah, there's, there's lots of things we track. That, that's all on the, the business side. We also track product metrics as well. Sentiment analysis. How fast do you feel superhuman is by comparison to Gmail? How reliable? How powerful? And we measure that separately on desktop and mobile as well. These then all feed into our OKR process, and we usually create key results around multiple of these metrics.
0: Can you share any of the OKRs that you're working on right now?
2: Uh, Sure. I actually recently got asked this question, so I have a nice sanitized version of them. (laughs) So... Our objective for this quarter has been to refine the entire superhuman experience to exhibit remarkable levels of quality, really keying off that third cultural value that we have. That's the objective. And we have three key results. One is around ARR, the second is around hiring, and the third is around product sentiment. So the first key result is to grow to a certain level of ARR by the end of the quarter. The second key result is to recruit five key people this quarter. And the third key result is to improve an aggregated sentiment metric. This aggregates speed, power, quality, and reliability across both platforms. So on desktop, this measure is currently at 89%. We want to get that to 92%. And on mobile, at the start of the quarter, it was 69%, and we want to get it to 75%. Uh, And what I like about these key results is anybody in the company can look at these and see, this is how I am making the objective happen. This is how I am helping push the company forwards.
0: This is a short question, but probably like a complicated one, which is how do you decide what to work on next?
2: Me personally, or, or we as the company?
0: Uh, you as the company.
2: Well, from a product perspective, uh, this is something that I covered in the product market fit article. Uh, how how do you generate a roadmap? And I think it does depend on what kind of company you're building. Uh, you know, if you have a runaway network effect, if you're an eBay or a Skype or a Facebook or a social network of that nature, then growth before all else is usually the right thing to do. But if you are, as I suspect, most of your audience will be thinking of or building, like Superhuman, a SaaS company where it's about individual utility and making individual people brilliant at what they do, I really do think you need more of a balance. And the way that we balance that is every quarter, we reset the roadmap and we fill it with 50% doubling down on doing more of what people love. And in our case, that's more speed, it's more aesthetics, it's more keyboard shortcut, it's more things that keep you in flow and moving quickly. And 50% systematically building the small things that are holding people back. Now, in any given quarter, you might nudge it one way or the other. We've certainly had quarters where we were actually closer to 70-30 one way or the other, depending on how things were going in the business at the time. But I think that's a very healthy starting point. And here's the quick reason why you would want a combination of both. Uh, And you can run the thought experiment of what would happen if you went 100% one way or the other. If you were 100% just doubling down on what people love, then you never really expand the set of people who could love your product. And in the terminology of the product market fit engine, you never increase the very disappointed score, the product market fit score, if you're only doubling down on building more of that stuff. So clearly you shouldn't only do that. If you only build the systematic objection overcomers to get more people to fall in love with your product, then assuming you have something, your competition will shortly overtake you because they'll be doubling down on the things that people already love about your product and they'll be doubling down on those things faster than you are. In this hypothetical scenario, you're not doubling down on them at all. And so you do actually need this balance to both maintain the lead you have over the market as well as continuously grow the size of the market that is applicable to you.
1: you think a time will come where you guys lift the invite-only requirement? And if so, like how will you know when the right time is to do that?
2: I don't want to say never, but maybe it will be never. It's certainly been remarkably effective. I can imagine us running the process that we're running now well and towards the end of next year. And then beyond that, we'll just have to see. Uh, I think one of the fun parts about being an entrepreneur and being a founder is how these variables are constantly shifting and how we constantly have to adapt.
0: I touched earlier on how picky I want to be with bringing new customers into my product. And we've actually hit that ramen profitability point where we're not going to fold, probably. I feel like the existential risk is gone. And we also are not venture-backed. We're bootstrapped. So we, we're self-funded. So we don't have to grow any faster than we want to. And we debate internally a fair amount around like, when should we... So we're, we currently are invite-only. And it's like, when should we put up the pricing page and like tell everyone what it costs and give them a buy button? And there's part of me that wants to have that answer be like kind of yours, which is like maybe never, or at least not right now. The advantage is the filtering, all the things you touched on before. Like we can make sure that the people that are joining are good fits for us and are going to have a great experience. I don't know. There's there's another part of me which is like, let's just let's let it go out into the world and let's let a lot of people touch it and see it. And maybe there will be this kind of large growth that happens when we stop constraining it that will be exciting and fun or interesting or something. Do you have any thoughts to share on that or ways to think about
2: that? Help me make that decision. Sure. Well, first of all, congratulations. That's amazing. Thanks. Always a huge, huge milestone. Uh, Secondly, there was an assumption baked into something you said uh, which I do want to unpick a little bit because I don't think it's true. This idea that when you're venture-backed, you have to grow faster than you want to. Uh, we've never done that. And the way that we think about growth is we, for a long time now, have picked a weekly growth rate that we know we want to hit. This was modeled after the advice that Paul Graham gives in his essay, Startup Equals Growth. And we just do what it, whatever it takes to hit the growth rate that we said we wanted to do. And that ties into how I would see your situation, obviously knowing very little of the details other than what you just shared, I would anticipate staying invite only for the foreseeable future, perhaps even forever. But with the caveat that you commit to a certain weekly growth rate. And I don't know what your absolute numbers are. It might be 5%. That's right. Or it might be 2% or 1% a week. That's right. But then I would just do whatever it takes to actually hit that weekly growth rate. Why? So this is where you sort of get into the philosophical. And Paul Graham's answer as to why was written in the headline of his article, which is Startup Equals Growth. For him, and also for me, I subscribe to this philosophy, one of the points of a startup is to be an incredibly fast growing thing. In fact, if you have a thing that's not growing incredibly quickly, by his philosophy, it would be a misnomer to call it a startup. But obviously, there are many different ways of of slicing this pie and uh, observing reality. So I think it's equally as valid to say, uh, I don't want to grow this thing at a certain percentage point every week, but I still want to call it a startup.
0: When you said philosophically, I was imagining more like, what do you want to do? What do you want to have? Like, I don't care if we call it a startup or not. I care more about, is it a thing that I really enjoy working on? And am I proud of it? Uh, and yeah those are sort of my bigger my bigger things i think if we didn't grow at all or too slowly i would find it kind of dull i guess there's there's like an excitement and a dopamine amount and whatnot that happens with growth that i think is worthier pursuing. pursuing uh, but i'm not sure how much i value like okay we have to we have this number and we really got to hit this otherwise we
2: failed and i should feel bad about that Again, I think there's an assumption baked in there, which is you should feel bad if you don't hit the thing. And what if you just took that constraint away? What if it was just a goal where you didn't feel bad if you didn't hit it?
0: I could conceivably do that. I feel like I usually, yeah, I mean, I guess that would be a practice. I usually feel bad if I miss a goal I set, Uh, but that could just be, you know, I need to get better at brain stuff.
2: (laughs) Uh, I'm not particularly good at the brain stuff either. Um, So I think I'm in the same boat there along with you. Uh, What I will say though is, when you are able to hit consistent growth week after week for a year or two on end it's it's incredibly exciting Mm -hmm. super motivating and uh i i can't imagine it any other way now gotcha yeah i i I think that's a totally reasonable position and
0: and i think there's part of me that probably like feels the same way just with smaller numbers i would guess but i do think there's yeah there's the thrill is maybe a is maybe a worthy pursuit not totally sure probably Mm -hmm. All right, Derek, anything else you want to ask before we wrap up? No, I think this has been a great discussion. Yeah. Rahul, thanks for coming on. I I
2: really appreciate it. It was fun chatting with you. Thank you both. I really appreciate chatting with you guys too.
0: Yeah. Is there anything you want to point people to to keep up with you or Superhuman?
2: Uh, Sure. So if folks want to sign up for Superhuman, they can do that at superhuman.com. I would add, though, that the fastest way to get onboarded is to get a referral uh, and maybe folks can reach out to the two of you in, in order to get that referral now that you're both happy users. Uh, and if folks want to keep in touch with me specifically, uh, then they can of course email me at rahul at superhuman.com, uh, or find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Rahul That's R-A-H-U-L-V-O-H-R-A. Awesome.
0: And, uh, show notes for this episode, Derek?
2: Yes. Show notes can be found at artofproductpodcast.com. Awesome. Thanks for listening. See ya.